Hi everyone, I'm Jessica. And I'm Morgan. You're listening to Suspicion on Zoom. <laughs> okay, welcome back everyone, including ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time, but as everybody knows, there's been something going on. So now we figured out how to record together yet apart. And hopefully this Zoom recording goes well. Yeah, we had planned on taking a little <clears throat> break um, between season two and season three. We didn't intend it for it to be quite this long, but given everything that's going on in our technical challengedness yeah uh, this is what happened so <laughs> we're excited to be back we hope this recording goes well and the audio is okay for everyone um but we're we're getting back at it and starting season three today so we're gonna try for season three to do stories that have true crime elements but are more of a, more of a mix of types of crimes yes and themes mm -hmm. exactly so today's story, growing up outside of Boston, we knew a little bit about the molasses flood, but nothing like what actually happened. In Boston's North End, known for its delicious Italian restaurants, there was a 50-foot tall steel tank, property of the United States industrial alcohol, holding molasses. The USIA took shipments of molasses from the Caribbean and used them to make liquor and munitions, which is guns and bullets, which How is so you, interesting. Yeah, did, do you know what munitions use molasses? I feel like it was probably gunpowder or something. So what was the Great Molasses Flood? I'll tell you. <laughs> In 1915, World War I had caused increased demand for industrial alcohol, which is not the kind you drink, everyone. Don't try that at home. The USIA was rushed to complete this molasses tank in Boston. As a port city, it made sense to have it there. Construction, though, was so haphazard that once it was complete, the container would often groan and leak molasses onto the street. It leaked so much that there were stories where kids would take cups, go up to the container, and get some molasses to bring home. <laughs> uh, perfect wow. for gingerbread cookies, one of my faves. But that also seems counterproductive, too, if they really need molasses for industrial alcohol or whatever, to make it so that the container's leaking. Well, yeah, that wasn't I mean, intended. Yeah, but... I don't know why at that point they're not, oh, well, let's fix it. We're losing money. Mm -hmm. but, no, it's all about the money. Come right? on. <laughs> Most of the residents grew used to the sound of creaking and the smell of molasses in their neighborhood. But one USIA employee warned his bosses that the tank was going to cause some serious issues. But the company only recocked it and then let it be. 100 years later, so 
2015. Yeah. Yeah. Um, analysts have done some tests and research to find out why the flood was really such a disaster. Most of the factors dealt with safety oversights, flood construction, and temperature. In one investigation, the fundamental problem was with the structure of the tank. It was designed to hold 2.5 million gallons of liquid and measured 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter. But the tank walls were much too thin to support the weight of a tank full of molasses. The same analysis found at the time of the flood, the tank had been topped off only a couple days earlier, with the tank holding enough molasses to fill 3.5 Olympic-sized swimming pools, wow. which caused stress on the rivets used to hold the walls together. After concerns about the noises every time the tank was filled, the USIA should have tested it by filling it with water to see if any leaks happened, but they did not. They should have noticed that when the temperature went below 59 degrees, the metal became more brittle. And on the day of the flood, it was 40 degrees, which is not surprising. It's not like yeah. 40, 59 degrees is the coldest it gets in Boston. Oh. It's like the warmest it gets. Heck no. And especially, so, especially in January when this takes place, 40 degrees in Boston is a nice day. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is actually really interesting to me. I, I was telling Morgan about this when she brought up doing this um, disaster. I actually studied engineering in college, and one of our classes was called writing and engineering or engineering communication, something like that. And one of the things we did was um, study engineering disasters, this being one of them. Some other ones that people might know was the um, explosion of the Challenger mm -hmm. spacecraft, um, the Hyatt Regency walkway collapse. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, what is the bridge that started like weaving and waving and then fell? Oh, I can't think of the name, but Harry Potter <laughs> and the Deathly Hallows. No, this was some real life <laughs> stuff. Um, but anyway, so we studied these things to emphasize the importance of good communication and engineering, because you need to be able to say when something, when changes are made for economic reasons, uh, construction reasons, you need to be able to convince and make the case that these like shortcuts should not be um, done because it's going to compromise the, the stability of the structure. On January 15th, 1919, the weather was, like we said, 40 degrees, usually a time when people in Boston will pull out their spring clothes. On this day, it was business as usual for the people in the north end of Boston. A fire station crew were hanging out playing cards outside, a bartender was sleeping in, and some kids were playing outside when all of a sudden there was a huge metallic sound, almost like a roar. Okay, come on, those little stories about the fire station, did you make those up? Nope, nope, it, it comes to play. It comes into play. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, some tough Boston firefighters outside. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> you are engaged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not here. Around 12 
Around 12.40 p.m., the refilled molasses tank ripped open and 2.3 million gallons of molasses rushed out. Our last episode was on maple syrup. And while dad and I were doing the maple syrup case, we had talked about how long it would have taken the thieves to siphon the syrup because out of a bottle, you know, when you pour maple syrup, it takes a while for it to come out. Okay, everyone, I would like to address this right now because I'm not on the maple syrup case (laughs) recording. Maple syrup is quite liquidy. You You only eat the fake stuff, which is like that like gloopy gloop, but like, Real maple syrup, like, falls right out of there. All right. First of all, don't knock Aunt Jemima, okay? (laughs) It's delicious. So you two fake syrup eaters are like, how could it possibly come out of the (laughs) tank? And I'm listening, like, maple syrup (laughs) just glides right on out. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. We just sounded like some (laughs) dum-dums. All right, but well, anyway, I was wondering the same thing with molasses because, like you said, molasses is pretty um, thick. So, you know, if it's coming out of a tank, you'd assume it'd be pretty slow, or at least I would. In both cases, before molasses or maple syrup become what we eat, they are very liquidy, and the molasses would have moved with a current almost like a mudslide. It's fast, but thick. In this case, a 15-foot wave of molasses moved at 35 miles per hour down Commercial Street in the North End. People and horses were swept up, buildings and electrical poles were snapped, along with the steel supports of a train platform. The flood lasted. TA has never quite recovered. (laughs) But, um. (laughs) Oh, that was really good. Thanks. (laughs) The flood lasted only a couple of minutes, but once it was over, it started to immediately harden with survivors stuck in the molasses. One story is of eight-year-old Antonio DiStasio, his sister Maria, and another boy named Pascal Iantosca. Oh, beautiful Italian names. They were outside getting firewood for their families. Antonio, Maria, and Pascal were immediately caught up in the molasses. Maria was suffocated to death, and Pascal was killed after being struck by a railroad car that was also in the wave. Antonio survived, but had a severe head injury after being flung into a light post. The fire station was knocked off its foundation and a nearby house was even picked up and pushed into the train platform. A man who was in the house, Martin Clardy, had just woken up when he witnessed his house crumble while he was thrown into the wave. He almost drowned, but he was able to climb on top of his bed frame that had been floating nearby, and he was able to rescue his sister, Teresa, but his mother and younger brother were killed. I mean, can you imagine 
a wave of molasses. I'm terrified about tsunamis. They they freak me out. And but then you see molasses. Oh god. Molasses tsunami. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that this happened so close to us. Yeah, but a hundred years ago. Yeah, but you don't I mean, I don't think I learned about it in school. Hmm. I can't remember. I don't remember when I learned about this. I feel like I did learn about it in school, but I'm not positive. Police and firefighters arrived at the scene within minutes, as did over 100 sailors from the Navy ship, the USS Nantucket. The molasses had started to harden quickly after being exposed to the air, which made it really difficult for first responders to walk through and get people out. It took many days for the workers to sift through the destruction, finding 21 dead and 150 people injured, with the remains of one victim not being found until four months later in Boston Harbor. Those affected by this disaster sued the USIA, arguing the tank had been too thin and not taken care of. The USIA believed that an Italian anarchist group had bombed the tank and caused it to rupture. That, come on. The of defense course. did not work as no one took ownership over the act and evidence did not suggest that it was bombed. I mean, if someone was bombed, you would know, right? Yeah, it would be a huge yeah. hole. But so apparently the this anarchist group, as they explain it in the um, sources that I looked through, had previously um, made threats against the USIA and against the tank. Oh. But whenever they did anything in Boston, this specific group, they would take ownership of it and stuff to get their message across. Right. Whereas here, they said, no, we had nothing to do with this. Yeah. The USIA paid the victims and their family members around $8 million in today's money. The community came together and over 300 workers removed debris and wreckage while using brooms, saws, and saltwater pumps to get rid of the last of the molasses. Even though the molasses was gone from the streets, it's said that the smell lasted for several weeks and the Boston Harbor was brown until the summer. I bet the Boston Harbor was already brown. It was not in green. <laughs> you were on condition. fire. You're on fire today. I mean, the Boston Harbor back in the day was known for being like so roady. So oh, yeah. Totally. I'm sure the molasses just added <laughs> a little. Just added a little bit. I just can't believe that. It's crazy to imagine houses and a fire station being down because of a molasses. And then how do you clean that up? I know. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> like afterwards, they must have just been like, give me a freaking break. Yeah, because you'd... I'm thinking you'd have to shovel and kind of get at it. it. Yeah. Oh. Ooh. Man, crazy, crazy. Well, our organization spotlight for this week is the Office for Victims of Crime. The OVC administers the Crime Victims Fund, which is financed by fines and penalties paid by convicted federal offenders, not from tax dollars. I really liked that because I, I was always wondering where that money went. Same. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I never knew that either. 
Federal revenues deposited into the fund also come from gifts, donations, and bequests by private parties. OVC channels funding for victim compensation and assistance through the, throughout the United States, raises awareness about victims' issues, promotes compliance with victims' rights laws, and provides training and technical assistance, and publications and products to victim assistance professionals. If you want to learn more about the Office for Victims of Crime, visit their website at www.ovc.gov. Really cool. I mean, I always think that what victims of crimes get for quote unquote compensation is so minimal. And what they actually get opposed to what they're supposed to get, especially in those big, you know, fraud cases and such. Oh, like Bernie Madoff type of thing? Mm-hmm. Or even like Fire Festival? <laughs> Fire Festival. Yeah. Okay, we might cover that because that is... I really think we should because that is... I, re- <laughs> I feel like that's lighthearted too, you know? It is. It is. And also, I remember when, when it came out. I remember people be saying, oh, should we do go to the Fire Festival? People ask you if you should go to the fire festival. Yes, and I said I have about forty dollars in my bank account. Oh, no, yeah. my <laughs> crowd was not <laughs> thinking we could go to the fire festival. <laughs> I'll say that for a fact. <laughs> I had a few. I have a few uh, crowd crowd friends, fire festival crowd friends, but have thankfully fun. they didn't go. Fire friends. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Mm. Well, I'm so happy that um, we're starting to do this again. I hope everyone enjoyed this little episode and uh, look out for more stuff from us soon. Check out our Facebook, our Instagram, our website, Suspicion. I'm going to get that all back up and running. And yeah, uh, come back next week for another episode. Thanks, everyone, and stay suspicious. Okay.